Our New Testament lesson is found in Colossians chapter 1. We are reading verses 24 through chapter 2, verse 5. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I've had for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, today we remember the great victory of our Lord Jesus Christ, his ascent into heaven, and from there he pours out your spirit upon us. And it is by your spirit that we discern the truth of the gospel. It is by your spirit that our hearts are opened to believe. It is by your spirit that we are led and guided into all truth. And so today, God, we ask that you send out your light and your truth. Renew us once again and lead us upon your path. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. In our passage today, Paul opens up about the nature of gospel ministry. He speaks honestly to us about its pains and its pleasures, its joys and its difficulties, but the main question is why? And what does this have to do with you? Isn't this just a sermon perhaps for those who are training for ministry? Or perhaps isn't this just a sermon for those who attend presbytery? Why does a congregation need to hear details about Paul's apostolic gospel ministry and the particular difficulties and rejoicings that he experiences. It is important to remember as you come to this passage that the Colossian church was a young church. It's also in a region with other young churches. It's fairly healthy and vibrant from what we know of Paul's description. But it was under pressure, pressure from a group of false teachers who were saying that Jesus wasn't sufficient. And they were actually claiming that the Colossian church needed to look to other mediators, needed to join themselves to other things beyond Jesus in order to really connect with God and to have fellowship with him. And so Paul opens up and he lays out for us what the contours of gospel ministry look like so that the congregation would be able to discern true gospel ministry 
from false or imposter gospel ministry. And this is why it's important. No, this is why it's critical for us to consider what he says today, because it helps us to discern truth from error. And this isn't just for pastors and elders. It's not just for ministers who are in training. This is for the church to be able to discern the true article of gospel ministry from false ministry. And so in the passage today, we see five things, five, I am a Calvinist, very sophisticated theological humor, five things here about the shape of gospel ministry. First, we're going to discover the context of that ministry. Secondly, we'll consider the content of it. Third, we'll see the charge of gospel ministry. Fourth, the goal, and finally, its fruit. Let's look at each of these briefly. First, in verse 24, we see the context of gospel ministry. Paul begins by saying these words, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now this verse generates no small amount of controversy. Paul here speaks about afflictions of Jesus that he is filling up. And so the natural question is simply to ask, what afflictions is Paul filling up? What was insufficient about Jesus' sufferings? It's important to go ahead and clarify that Paul is not saying there's anything lacking about Jesus' sufferings in order to atone for sins. But rather, the word he uses here, afflictions, is a significant one. Because in first century Judaism, there was a widespread belief that before the age to come, when God returned and made all things right, there was going to be a period known as the messianic woes. That is, there was going to be trial and trouble. It was a season of affliction. And in the New Testament, what we find is that Paul applies that season of trial and tribulation, not to just a period right before Jesus returns, but he applies it to the period, the era of time, between Jesus' resurrection and his final return. And so he is here setting the context for where gospel ministry takes place and also setting our expectations that there will be trial and difficulty, there will also be rejoicing and pleasure and success, and it will all be one big hot mess. This is the context that he's setting. And obviously in Colossae, there was success. The church was abounding and growing. But there was also difficulty because there were false teachers. And so Paul is also speaking of his imprisonment. He's speaking of the anxiety he experiences over the churches under the pressure of the false teachers. He's also just speaking of his general concern for the growth of the gospel around the Mediterranean world throughout the Roman Empire. But also note something, that in the midst of this difficulty, in the midst of these afflictions that Paul and the church experienced, that they don't undo him. He doesn't form a political action campaign and wring his hands and try to do something about it. He actually rejoices. He sees it as a good thing. He knows that this is part of God's plan, that these troubles that the church is walking through are actually the birth pangs that will lead to a new world. 
This was Paul's deepest conviction. And so he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He can reframe his sufferings and difficulties. He can reframe his afflictions because he knows they're on the way to something. He rejoices because of the truths we have just worked through in the past weeks in verses 15 through 20 in chapter 1. That our Lord Jesus, the firstborn of creation, the preeminent and supreme one who rules over all things, who's the agent of creation, is going to make good upon all that he is and all, for all the gifts that he made. He will redeem them and renew them and that he will raise them. And so Paul, confident that his sufferings are in, on the way towards that greater goal. And so this is what we see the context of gospel ministry is, one of difficulty and trial, and there's also rejoicing, and there's also growth and success. But second, in verses 25 through 28, we also learn about the content of gospel ministry. Paul begins speaking here about He uses several different terms. He refers to the word of God. Then he refers to the mystery. And then he just simply refers to Christ. And he says in verse 28, he summarizes everything. And this is the content of his gospel ministry. Him, that is Jesus, we proclaim. That the word of God, the mystery, these are all referring to Jesus. And friends, this is the simplicity of gospel ministry that it has a summary in one person. It is a proclamation of the risen Jesus, of all that he has done for us, of all that he is for us. And we have no permission to change that. And we need to always note and focus upon the fact that gospel ministry, the focus of it, is not upon morality. That is not the focus of gospel ministry. That the focus of gospel ministry is not on politics. That's not the focus. That the focus is not on our mission. Even if that mission is assigned by God, the focus of gospel ministry is not on mission. And so things like church planting or even racial reconciliation, this is not the focus. The focus is not on the means of mission, about how we do our church programming, how we do small groups or discipleship or anything like this. Bible reading plans. This is not the focus of gospel ministry. All these things are good in and of themselves, and they have their place in the church. But the focus, the center, the core of gospel ministry, Paul says it in three words, him we proclaim, that all these other things are only oriented and only are true in in that they relate to Jesus, who sits at the hub of gospel ministry. We have no permission to make anything else central. And Paul is working in a context where people were decentering Jesus, saying that he wasn't sufficient. Jesus has something to say about all these other things, morality, politics, mission, means of mission. But we always must talk about those things in reference to him, and he must remain central in that conversation. He is the center and the core who directs and guides, orients and shapes our life. This is the content of gospel ministry. Third, we also learn in verse 28 about the charge of gospel ministry. As the verse continues, him we proclaim, warning everyone 
and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Paul uses two further modifiers to explain that proclamation, warning and teaching. And the word teaching is clear enough, but the word warning deserves some further explanation. Because this word is not just meaning to put information or admonishment before people. It's not just information in your mind or being told not to particularly do something. The term is far deeper than that, than content transfer. It includes the idea of setting someone's mind in proper order. And so when we look at the context, it's alluding to the fact that our minds become disordered, that through various influences, perhaps cultural or through false teaching, that our minds can become jumbled and that Paul sees the task of gospel ministry is not only introducing people to the gospel, but untangling a disordered and jumbled mind as we make our way through life in the church. It's necessary to do this because we're surrounded with plausible arguments and people with all kinds of different religious ideas that compete with Jesus. And so he sees the task of gospel ministry to be an ongoing one in which he's pushing back and pushing against all the different things that vie for our affections. And friends, this is why we have to give so much time to proclamation, to proclaiming Christ, working that then down into the soil of our own particular cultural moment, down into all the weeds of the things that push against Jesus and draw us away from him. We have to make sure that doctrines are not just half-grasped or misappropriated. It is the charge of having a congregation to understand, to appreciate, and know how to apply those doctrines. This is the charge of gospel ministry. Now, fourth, in verse 28, we also learn here about the goal of gospel ministry. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You will note the emphasis on the word everyone. It's there in the original, repeated. And it's something important that Paul is bringing out, that he has a goal for everyone, not just for a spiritual elite, not just for those who are in the leadership or in the hierarchy of the church, that everyone has equal and same access. It is for all. And that goal for all is that they be mature in Christ. This does not mean that everyone is perfectly sinless and blameless and has arrived at full sanctification. This is not what Paul is speaking of here. Rather, it means that everyone knows the sufficiency of Jesus and everyone is settled on that sufficiency and content in it. This is the maturity, the goal that Paul speaks of here in this passage. And down in chapter 2, in verse 2, he explains that part of this goal is for everyone to reach the fullness, uh, to reach the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so what Paul is appealing to in this maturity 
is that we know the sufficiency of Jesus, that in him relies, resides all wisdom, that all the treasures we need are located in him, and we need not go to any other. And so this is Christian maturity. It is being satisfied, it's being set, and it's being settled in relation to Jesus and knowing that he is the one who brings us into God the Father's presence. And he alone is sufficient to do that. He alone can accomplish that. And friends, it is a perpetual struggle in the Christian life to find those riches of assurance. And that many struggle to have that sense of security John Newton, the great English hymn writer, was a prolific letter writer. He had a friend, a Methodist minister named William Howe. Howe writes to Newton. He expresses his deep concern that God will never forgive his sins. Newton writes back, and he pins these words. He says, when we burden ourselves with our many sins we are apt to overlook the very greatest of them, unbelief. For what can be a greater proof of stubbornness and pride than to dare to contradict the express word of God, to say that he will not pardon when he declares that he will, to persist in it that he will make differences when he has assured us that he will make none. And friends, this is the goal of Christian maturity, is to embrace what Newton says, that God will not make differences between your sins, that actually when Jesus gives himself in our place when he dies, and that he has been raised, and he is at God's right hand interceding for us, that nothing can take that away, that he is sufficient for all of your misdeeds. He cancels them out. Because he is the righteous one. And there is nothing that can take that away from you when you look to him in faith. When you trust him to be the sufficient offering on your behalf. And this is why we can be confident. And the goal of gospel ministry is to have that maturity. Not to walk in sinless perfection. Knowing that that comes on the other side of the grave in resurrection. But what comes now is that settled confidence that Jesus is sufficient for us. This assurance is not for the elite. It's not for the pastors. Paul says it's for everyone. It is for us all to learn to look to Jesus and only to him. Fifth and finally, in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2, we also see the fruit of gospel ministry. In verse 5, Paul writes, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul summarizes here what the fruit of gospel ministry in its suffering, in its proclamation, and in its application is to achieve. In verse 2, he has mentioned being knit together in love and being fully assured, as we discussed just a moment ago, of Jesus' work. And what's important to recognize as he speaks of the good order and also of the firmness of their faith is Paul brings together two things that we tend to struggle to hold together today. He 
brings together the notion of spirituality being a communal thing, that you be knit together in love, that you have good order. He is referring to good discipline, which refers to a community's life. And then he speaks not just on that corporate level, but also on the personal level, that you be sound in faith. And for the Apostle Paul, these two things, the corporate and the individual, were always wed together. That yes, we belong to Christ and we're united to him, but then we belong to his body, which is the church. In the modern world, we struggle to keep that notion of the individuality and the corporate nature of Christianity together. And that frequently you will hear people say, well, I belong to God's church but not to any particular church where I live. I have a Bible study, I have Christian friends, and I go to church online every Sunday. Friends, it's just important to point out that at no time in the history of Christianity, in 2,000 years, has anyone had this notion that God doesn't give us permission to tear apart what he has wed together, that he has wed together the Christian, in their union with Christ, to be part of a body, to be joined to a local congregation, to rejoice in that. And Paul sees that as the fruit, a well-ordered congregation that's stable in faith, that together believes and finds Jesus to be sufficient, that helps one another and sustains one another, knit together in love, that this is the design of the gospel. It's a gift not a burden, it's a gift. And this is what the, how the church serves us. And so against all the things, all the false gospels that were being pressed against this young church, Paul demonstrates what the true shape of an apostolic gospel ministry looks like. He sets the context. And that context is one of suffering and affliction, difficulty and pressure, and also rejoicing. He tells us the content of it. And the content, the central person, the central feature of gospel ministry is Jesus. That we proclaim him, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his coming return, all the gifts that are ours in him. That gospel ministry is saturated with Jesus and everything else we discuss is related to him. He gives us the charge of gospel ministry. That is that we warn and we teach. That is that we're working these beliefs, this proclamation of Jesus down into the soil of our lives. Pressing back against the imposters. We learn about the goal. The riches of full assurance, maturity in Christ, looking to Jesus to be sufficient in faith. And we see the fruit of gospel ministry. That is a well-ordered and disciplined congregation, firm in faith, knit together in love. The corporate and the individual all in harmony. Friends, this is the shape of gospel ministry. It's the gift that we participate in as we look to Jesus in faith as we're united together in the spirit. And so let's ask for his help to that end. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the shape of gospel ministry, for how you have brought this about, and particularly for working in our hearts to draw us to faith, 
giving us eyes to see and ears to hear, to believe and to belong, to be knit together in love with one another. And God, we ask that you sustain that and build that and grow that. Work within us. Continue to instruct us. Continue to teach us and warn us. Draw us away from those false things that take away from Jesus' sufficiency. And God, give us the full assurance that we belong to you, that in Jesus are all the treasures of wisdom, the riches that we need. And so may we hold fast to him all of our days. Build us up. May we be firm and stable. May we be well-ordered together. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.